Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we meet the director of the Norfolk Chamber Music Festival in its 76th year in collaboration with the Yale Summer School of Music. Melvin Chen will tell us about the history of chamber music in the northwest corner of the state, and he makes the case that classical music isn't dying. Music is actually alive, it's still growing, and so part of that is also featuring in some way the, the, the music of young people. You'll hear more from Melvin Chen later in the show. But first, debate around tax reform in the U.S. often pits the rich against the poor, at a time when the gap between the two continues to widen dramatically. According to the Institute for Policy Studies, the 20th wealthiest people own more wealth than the bottom half of the American population combined. That's 152 million people. So what's the solution? Do you think the wealthy in America pay enough in taxes? Or are you one of the 1% that feels like you've paid enough back into society and don't want additional burdens? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at WMPR.org. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, Chuck Collins has an interesting perspective. He's a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies based in Washington, D.C., co-editor of Inequality.org, and he's written several books. The one we're focusing on today is Born on Third Base, a one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home, and committing to the common good. Chuck joins us from the studios of WGBH in Boston. Chuck, welcome to Where We Live. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me, Lucy. Now, you've written several books, but for listeners who may not know about your work, they probably recognize the name of your great-grandfather, uh, Oscar Mayer. That's right. Yep. Uh, my, my dad used to say bringing home the bacon meant something different in our family, <laughs> which is true. Um, but yeah, I come, I'm in fourth generation of a, of a great, uh, you know, uh, 1880s founded business. Now, you've written a lot. You do a lot of speaking engagements. And you often say that you were born lucky. Tell people what you mean. Well, I think, you know, in my circumstances, I actually was, you know, born into a family with, with uh, substantial wealth. I actually, you know, inherited enough wealth when I was 21 that I could pay off my college tuition and have a substantial amount of money left over. And uh, it just, uh, it, 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 I'm still unraveling all the ways in which that gave me a head start. Uh, uh, not just money, but sort of the social capital of growing up in an affluent family, four generations of economic stability, access to education, access to help when things go wrong. Uh, all those things kind of are, I, I think of them as almost like comp- compounding advantages over generations. When you were a child, did you understand that you had this privilege, that there are a lot of Americans who didn't have the lifestyle you had? You know, uh, by coincidence, uh, 50 years ago, this weekend is the anniversary of the Detroit riots, and I was seven years old. And I think that was actually a a kind of end of innocence moment for me because my mom explained to me that that underlying those those riots 50 years ago was that growing gap, the gap between city and suburb, rich and poor, black and white. And and that sort of stuck with me. That was sort of a seed that, that made me feel like, oh, all is not well, and it has to do with inequality. 
Now, when you were in your teens, you moved from Michigan uh, to Worcester. What brought you there? Um, I was hungry for other life experiences. You know, I really grew up in a in an affluent bubble of Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Uh, I just I was the only person in my private boys school, Cranbrook School, not to go right to college. Uh, that's the same high school with, that Mitt Romney went to. Um, so I actually came to Worcester and I did an internship apprenticeship program and I stayed another year just to work odd jobs. And it was just an opportunity for me to get out of that bubble and make friends and do other kinds of work and see the world from a different perspective. Did you get the, the firsthand glimpse of, of, of true poverty, some of the people that you may have met in this working class town? Yeah, actually, in the late 70s, Worcester was definitely down on its luck. And uh, a lot of the people I met were decent, hardworking people who just weren't able to get ahead. Uh, I worked with tenants in public housing uh, communities. I worked as a teacher in a daycare center with kids that came from families that uh, you know, didn't have anywhere near the advantages I had. So all of that was part of the experience. And later I worked with uh, after college, I worked with mobile home park residents around New England, including in Connecticut, where the residents didn't own their land, didn't own their parks, and I was working with them to buy their parks and own them as uh, resident-owned cooperatives. So again, I had this intimate front-row seat to how people were sort of struggling with stagnant wages, where also coming from an affluent family, I could see how wealth was multiplying. Wealth was creating more wealth at the top. Mm. So you did something not just doing good in your 20s, but then you made a decision that might be surprising to some people listening in terms of the the inheritance uh, that you would have uh, uh, gotten from your family. What what did you decide to do? Well, uh, you know, I think I was inspired by uh, authentic communities where people really kind of were all in for each other. And that was not something I grew up with. I mean, I grew up around people who were generous and charitable, but I I didn't have the, the experience of solidarity and reciprocity that I was seeing. And and so I, I made the decision to give the, the wealth away, not necessarily out of sort of a, you know, uh, just a, a, a charitable impulse, but it actually f- felt like it was interfering with my own progress in life as a, as a person, you know. So I made this decision to give the, give the wealth I had away to several foundations in the region and uh, continued to do the work that I've been doing. And, but it, it, it did kind of uh, liberate me in the sense of being able to look very unflinchingly at these inequalities that have emerged really in the last 30 years. There are uh, cases of uh, the wealthy uh, that are still able to you know, hold on to their wealth but still do good. But why did you take that step? Well, I, uh, I, you know, I was 26 years old, so I, I, and I look at my own children in their 20s mm-hmm. and say, look, your brains are still developing. Uh, but I think in my case... Uh, I didn't want to be a philanthropist. I think that is, you know, honorable work, but it wasn't it wasn't what I felt called to do. I really wanted to make my own way, uh, not defined by something that happened, you know, a hundred years ago. Uh, now, in retrospect, that's impossible. Uh, but at the time, I thought maybe I could, and uh, you know, I wanted to to make my own way. And I, and I, I some people say, well, yeah, if you'd held on to that money, you know, you'd have a very large amount of money, and you could be doing good with that. But I feel like I'm. I have plenty of opportunities to do good work. This is where we live. We're talking with Chuck Collins, uh, author of Born on Third Base, a one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home, and committing for the to the common good. He's joining us today from the studios of WGBH in Boston. Can I ask you, Chuck, what was your family's reaction when you decided to give away again your inheritance? 
Well, you know, my, uh, I, I, I thanked my parents for the opportunities I'd had and tried to explain why I wanted to make this decision. And, and actually, my father came out to visit me in Massachusetts, and he, he asked some pretty good questions like, well, look, you're single. What if someday you have a family member that has an illness? Uh, what if you're, uh, you have a child and that child has a special need? Aren't you going to wish you had that money? To which I replied, well, if, if that were to happen, I'd be in the same boat as 99% of the people I know. I would have to get some help. And he said, well, then you would, you know, but ultimately you'd have to fall back on government and that would be a tattered, lousy safety net. And I said, well, maybe I'd have a personal stake in making that a better safety net. To which any smart parent replied, you know, oi, you know, <laughs> so idealistic. Um, but, you know, in the end, I think that the, my family really understood uh, at the, the, to tell you the truth, I had no idea the other mountain of advantages and privileges that I had. You know, I'm white, I'm male, I have a debt-free college education, which as we know today is a privilege. Mm-hmm. I have all, you know, this kind of uh, sort of stability of growing up in a family. I learned about money. I mean, I have so much advantage wired into my life that I can't give away. It's just there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's been part of the, the, the understanding. And, and I've come to appreciate, you know, lots of people, both in my immediate family and extended family, who, who uh, you know, try to be very thoughtful about how they use wealth philanthropically and, and how to invest in a way that helps build a strong and resilient economy. So there's many, many paths. I don't, I don't think there's just one. You write in your book uh, that your father warned you about you know, life being unpredictable, having a safety net, as you mentioned. And you learned uh, fairly quickly after um, you gave away your family, your inheritance, that um, life does throw you some punches. What exactly happened to you? Well, yeah, uh, you know, uh, I think my father said to me things like, you know, you grew up in a bubble and bad things can happen. And uh, and then, you know, after I made this decision and signed the papers and transferred this wealth uh, to several foundations. Um, you know, I lived in a house that burned down. Uh, fortunately, no one was hurt. But I pretty w- I was very disoriented. I mean, I lost everything I had, including, you know, all the papers that said who I was. So I sort of was uh, just completely disoriented. And the day after this house fire happened, um, you know, I'm sort of standing around looking uh, at this charred-out house and uphole a carload of people that I had worked with down the road, a bunch of mobile home park residents who'd heard about the fire and uh, came to help us put our lives back together. And in that moment, I kind of felt like, wow, I I think I'm getting what I want, which is I want to live in a community where people show up for each other and help each other out. And and, um, so it was a kind of spiritual affirmation that maybe I'm going to be okay, uh, even though it felt like I was taking a leap. And that's a theme throughout your book, this idea that the 1% to 5%, uh, the wealthiest Americans in this country, uh, that they should be investing in their communities uh, in ways instead of uh, you know, finding ways to uh, avoid uh, more taxes. But we'll talk a little bit more about that in a, in coming up. But I, I wanted you, because you are considered the inequality expert, uh, Chuck Collins, ex- explain to us why the income inequality, how bad is it in this country if it doesn't improve, um, this, this gap is not less. Well, I would characterize what we're living through as a period of extreme inequality, uh, similar to what uh, the United States went through 100 years ago, you know, during the first Gilded Age, where we have uh, a dizzying gap both in income and wealth 
and opportunity. And, um, you know, for 40 years, real wages for the bottom half of wage earners have pretty much stayed stagnant or fallen. Uh, and meanwhile, most of the income and wealth gains have not just gone to the top 1%, but are kind of gushing up to the top one-tenth of 1%. So we're living in a period where wealth is very concentrated. And it actually matters a lot because it, 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 it undermines sort of social cohesion. Uh, it obviously undermines democracy. I think the election that we just lived through is a reflection that a polarized economy gives rise to a polarized politics. Um, healthcare, it's bad for the economy. There's, you can sort of, I, I've, I've come to realize there's almost like a, a mountain of interdisciplinary research on why these inequalities undermine pretty much everything you and I care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's the moment we're in. And I think, but I also think that moment creates an interesting uh, uh, thing, which is, for me, for, my, for people in my circumstances who grew up in the 1% or have made entrepreneurial wealth, it's actually entirely in our selfish interest to fix these inequalities because they undermine the quality of life for everyone, including the very wealthy. Now, uh, when you go around and talk about, I know as early as 2003, we learn in your book that uh, you travel with some one percenters, including including the father of Bill Gates Sr. How are Americans responding uh, to your message uh, that um, it's it's up for the wealth up to the wealthy to return what society has enabled them uh, to to be successful? I think people are obviously pretty polarized on that, uh, and it sort of depends on the story that you have in your head about how wealth is created. So, you know, I think the dominant story is, look, there's a, there's a, you know, a successful group of people who get up early in the morning, work hard all day, take risks and create enormous wealth. Uh, and they deserve it because they, that's, you know, it's, it's a function of their own individual effort. And there are obviously cases where that, you know, there are new immigrants who show up with very little in their pockets and, and, and make, you know, extraordinary uh, heroic <laughs> efforts to build companies and businesses but the bigger story, I think, and, and it exists side by side with the other story, is, you know, no one does it alone. Uh, and if you have wealth of, a, of the 15 million or 15 billion level, uh, your, your wealth in part comes from the function of the society, the things that we all do together, the, the, the public institutions, the investments, the research the infrastructure, intellectual property protections, I mean, go down the list, there's a web of commonwealth that makes individual wealth possible. And what I find is that if people see that, whether they're wealthy or not, if they, but I, what I've found is like someone like Bill Gates' dad grew up, you know, had got the GI Bill, first person in his family to go to college, got the GI Bill to go to law school. He sees this like web of public investments that made his own wealth and success possible. And so he says, well, yeah, yeah, I worked hard, but I need to give back so that the next generation can have the same opportunities I had. And that creates a very different story. So part of the reason I wrote this book, Born on Third Base, is because I wanted people to understand there's a very different story about individual wealth and success and the role of society in making that possible. And part of that is through paying taxes. 
Part of it's by giving to charity. Part of it's by giving other gifts. But a big part of it is through public investments. And, uh, you know, we used to tax ourselves at much higher levels. And I think of after World War II, you know, we taxed ourselves high incomes and high estates and inheritances were taxed more and funds went to pay for public goods like debt-free college education and first-time homebuyer loans and things that built mostly a white middle class. But that gives us an example, a clue of what good societies are capable of. Let's talk about that a little bit more because I'm sure you've heard from many uh, the entrepreneur that says, I am giving back because I'm creating jobs. I'm giving people jobs. I'm paying for their health care. Why isn't that enough? Well, you know, a lot of times when you, if you kind of dig into the biographies of those entrepreneurs, you find, oh, they got a publicly funded debt-free college education. Oh, they're operating in a field that was largely built through public investments or they enjoy the benefits of publicly funded infrastructure. So yes, creating a business and employing people and paying a living wage is obviously a really important part of the equation. But after World War II, those 30 years after World War II, there's really no substitute for a robust, healthy, public funded sector. Um, it's not enough just to be an employer. We, you know, and this is what I find I love hearing stories of, you know, how people have made it. But what's particularly beautiful are the people who see that they didn't do it alone, that they actually got a lot of help along the way, that it's not just sort of the great man theory of wealth creation. I was born in a state of nature. No one helped me. I started this company, Leave Me Alone. But quite the opposite. I was born into a society where I just landed on a... You know, a society, the United States has this remarkable, you know, 200 years of public investments, property rights protections, patents, uh, publicly funded research and education. We, and if we start to disinvest that, which is basically what we're doing, if we start to withdraw tax dollars from that public sector, it will, we will kill the goose that lays the golden egg. We will, we will eat the seed corn of what a good society is possible. At the same and so even wealthy people, there are even mm -hmm. a lot of wealthy people who start to understand that. There's this guy, Peter Georgescu, who just wrote this book called Capitalists Arise, basically calling on his fellow CEOs to like urgently step in and fix these inequality issues. At the same time, you mentioned uh, the 2016 election. I think at the end of this month, uh, there's a deadline uh, for uh, the tax plan under President Trump's administration. He campaigned on cutting tax rates for businesses and corporations. He won. What does that say about uh, the Americans who voted for him? And are they really tapped into this idea of, of income inequality in this country? I, I think this election was about inequality. I think that when you when when the, the the economic gains of the last 40 years are not shared with half the population that creates anger it creates a sense of betrayal um, you know I think my experience talking to Trump voters which I do a lot of is people are kind of all over the place uh, for in terms of why they they voted for the president but you know most people feel like yeah they feel overtaxed and i do think that many low and middle income people in our country are overtaxed and part of what we've done over the last 50 years is we've shifted the tax obligations off the off the wealthy off of uh, global transnational corporations and we've shifted it 
on to low and middle income people and on to domestic uh, and small businesses. So and of course, so they're feeling the pressure, and then the anti-tax people kind of manipulate that. They say, "Well, we're going to give you a tax cut." And if you look at the tax cut that's been proposed, whether it's Paul Ryan's plan or the president's plan, yeah, there's going to be a little bit of tax cut for everybody. But my people, the people with incomes over you know five million dollars, are gonna just—it's going to be a money grab. I mean, it's 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 a huge giveaway to the wealthiest groups uh, and the and the largest global corporations. You know, when we talk about corporate taxation, it's like. Can you really do better than zero for a lot of these companies that have been paying zero or very little taxes? Uh, if we're going to reform the cap corporate tax system, we should do something like we did in 1986, which is eliminate all the loopholes that create this unlevel playing field and, and have a, a decent low tax rate, but don't have so many loopholes for the global corporations. So I guess that's, I think that unfortunately, people's feeling of tax burden is being manipulated to push through another set of tax policies that will only enrich the already rich. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking to Chuck Collins, author of Born on Third Base, a one percenter makes a case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home, and committing to the common good. Coming up, we're going to get perspective from Connecticut. We'll hear more from Chuck, and we'll take your calls and questions, 860-275-7266. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Everyone wants a chance at success, and some of us have advantages over others. Author Chuck Collins lays out in his book, Born on Third Base, that it's only better for our country when the wealthy in America pay more in taxes because they are then giving back to a society that helped them become prosperous. What do you think? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Chuck Collins is with us from the studios of WGBH in Boston. Joining the conversation now is Jim Horan, CEO of the Connecticut Association for Human Services, Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We often hear about income inequality in this state, particularly when you look at uh, the the gap between the wealthy uh, and the middle class and the poor in Connecticut. Give us an idea of of the burden that's being felt here, Jim. Yeah, Connecticut has some of the highest inequality in the country. Uh, Our income inequality is third among the 50 states. It's even worse for wealth. Um, And Fairfield County is the most unequal of the top 100 metro areas in the country. Uh, The differences between Greenwich and Bridgeport are dramatic, but of course they're pretty dramatic between Hartford and the Farmington Valley or New Haven and the Shoreline communities. And then when you look at race, we also have tremendous inequality, so it's a matter of of place and race. For example, uh, the poverty rate for whites in Connecticut is 8%. It's 21% for Latinos and 26% for African Americans. So we have very dramatic inequality in our in our state. We also have a continuing budget crisis, as you know, uh, as you're part of, again, the Connecticut Association for Human Services. Um, oftentimes we hear from lawmakers and residents in the state that, you know, we can help decrease our deficit by increasing taxes on the wealthy. Then you hear from the other side, wealthy residents and some lawmakers, they're taxed enough, they'll leave Connecticut. Are we in a difficult predicament, Jim? We are in a tough situation, but, uh, you know, the solutions that Chuck is talking about, it's not a matter of pitting the wealthy against the poor. It's a matter of trying to figure out how we can work together 
to make things more fair and to create an atmosphere where we can have economic growth in the state that will benefit everyone. And I want to thank Chuck because he inspired a lot of the work that's happened in Connecticut to help make our tax system more equal. Um, Over the years, uh, I was part of a group that no longer exists, but uh, it's called One Connecticut, where we worked, inspired by United for a Fair Economy, a group that Chuck founded and worked with, um, to help make Connecticut's income tax more progressive. And I think that that was the right move, and now we have more income tax brackets, and that's a much uh, better situation in our state. However, we're also at the point where we've had very little economic growth, very little job growth in our state, and we do have to figure out policy solutions that will work to create both economic growth and also reduce the inequality that exists in our state. And some of the moves that are being considered right now with the state budget crisis, um, big cuts uh, to human services programs, to programs that serve low-income people, low-income cities, that's not the right move. And so we have to figure out solutions that are going to uh, generate enough revenue to have adequate funding for essential services in our society, for our education system, while at the same time making sure that we can have an economic atmosphere that encourages businesses to grow and more jobs here for everyone. I wanted to weigh, uh, get Chuck Collins to weigh in on that. Uh, he met, uh, Jim mentioned it's not about pitting the rich against the poor, but that's often the debate in this country. In your book, you talk about how uh, we can't be uh, antagonists, and this, that's not the way to get to a solution. So what are some ways, Chuck, to get to uh, a place where people can come together on this? Well, I think it, it starts with realizing that if you're a wealthy resident of Connecticut, it's entirely in your interest to have a have a state and have communities where there you know people have adequate access to jobs and decent incomes, and that these extreme inequalities are really undermining them. There's all kinds of research that just shows it's bad for the health of local communities, and it's bad for rich people. So, part that's part of it is to realize. And I, 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 I like to say, you know, look, it's time for the wealthy to come home and commit to place because over the last 20, 30 years, we're seeing wealth moving rapidly around the world, capital moving offshore, huge amounts of wealth is being hidden uh, in offshore tax systems or in complicated trusts that mask who benefits, who owns the wealth. And so that's taking money out of the public sphere, out of the communities and my my message is bring the wealth home, you know. Take bring it back to Connecticut. Invest it in local communities in the local economy. Build a healthy regional food system, a local energy system. Re revitalize uh, our cities and communities. It is in our interest, everyone's interest to do that. Chuck, so bring wanna, the wealth home. I want to fit in a listener call. John's calling from Terryville. John, you're on the show. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I'd like to dispute some of the um, the ideas there in terms of bringing capital home. Um, the, the, the easy answer is you got to tax it less. If we're going to tax corporations at thirty five percent in this country, and that's including when you factor in loopholes and deductions and whatnot, we have one of the highest corporate tax rates. So how are you going to bring capital home if we're taxing it at the highest rate? Capital goes where it gets the best return and it's going to be taxed the least. So that's why corporations are going to Ireland and different places like that where they're taxed at 15%. So if you think this is just an easy, well, we can dip into corporations, that's not accurate. All right, John, thank you for your comment. Uh, Chuck, do you want to respond to our listener? Yeah, I mean, we, we have a statutory corporate tax rate of 35%. 
But the effective rate, the rate that corporations actually pay, is closer to 19%, which is below the global average. And it's true. Ireland has created these tax breaks. A number of countries have created kind of a, a loopholes that U.S. corporations are using to move their you know, patents and subsidiaries overseas and, and play this kind of shell game to avoid taxes. We're, what I would say to John is there is several hundred global corporations that are paying zero or under 5% in terms of taxes. There's, there's, that is not that the reason they're leaving this country is because they don't want to pay any taxes anywhere. So the solution is to have global treaties with, our, with other countries that say, look, global corporations shouldn't be pitting countries against each other to pay zero, and uh, that we should have a basic uniform, you know, corporations should pay at least 10% income tax, and depending on, you know, what the kind of business they do, they should pay more. So there's, there's a bit of misinformation there in what John is mm-hmm. saying, which is... Uh, you know, U.S. corporations have very, relatively low taxes globally. That's not the reason they're leaving. They're leaving because they want to want to game it down to zero, and that to me is irresponsible. Because U.S.-based businesses, businesses that are rooted in Connecticut, are paying their fair share of taxes. So the the answer is not to to allow more global loopholes. We're almost out of time, but I wanted to just talk to you more about some of the policies, uh, not just tax reform, but policies to help uh, the people in that bottom half of the country, you know, to be able to put a little aside to save, to have that safety net. What can, uh, you know, I guess individual states do? You know, a number of states are doing interesting things to look at how do you help people uh, save, creating matching savings programs, Uh, the whole issue of college debt and how can people... Uh, you know, a, a number of states are looking at uh, creating debt-free college education funds. Washington State taxes inheritances, you know, above $5 million and puts it into a fund that provides debt-free college education for Washington State residents. So there are things that can raise the floor, just as we did after World War II. Uh, you know, uh, a whole generation of people were able to buy their houses with you know, 40-year, 1% fixed-rate mortgages. If you go around Connecticut and talk to farmers and baby boomers, they, they all took advantage of the post-World War II uh, wealth-building opportunity programs. We can do the same thing again, and states can innovate in that space. We should, we should stress, and I know you do in your book, uh, after World War II, African-Americans didn't get the same fair shake. Yeah, and I think that's one of the lessons is, look, you can't, you shouldn't design a wealth-building opportunity program and then uh, racially exclude. You know, we put millions of wealthy, we put millions of uh, white families on the express train to wealth building and we left blacks and Latinos out. So we need to remedy that. We need to repair that. And why wouldn't we create a first time homebuyer program for people who've been excluded of any race, been excluded from the opportunity to buy a house? Why do we push them into the predatory uh, lending markets? Well, I do want to thank Chuck Collins, who will be in Connecticut this weekend for the second annual uh, Booming Winstead Book Festival. We're going to have more information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Again, Chuck Collins, senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, author of several books. The one we were talking about today, Born on Third Base, a one percenter makes the case for tackling inequality, bringing wealth home and committing to the common good. He joined us today from the studios of WGBH in Boston. Uh, Chuck, thank you so much for your time. And I, you know, just real quick, how many of these one percenters have come home for you? 
you know, that, that more and more are coming home every day. And there's a whole organizations like the Patriotic Millionaires and Resource Generation. There's networks of people who are bringing the wealth home, you know, through impact investing, philanthropy, and speaking out for fair taxes. Again, thank you so much to Chuck Collins, who joined us today from the studios of WGBH in Boston. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much, Lucy. Also want to thank Jim Horan, Horan rather, CEO of the Connecticut Association for Human Services. Jim, thanks so much for your time as well. Thanks very much, Lucy. Coming up, looking for something new to do this weekend? You could drive to the northwest corner of Connecticut to the town of Norfolk, a place that has fostered a musical tradition for 76 years. We're going to tell you more after the break. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There's a bedroom called the Sibelius bedroom. And I looked at the mattress the other day, and I'm pretty sure it's the same mattress he slept on. (laughs) Norfolk is a lovely place to visit any time of year, but during the summer, the town's home to the Yale Summer School of Music and the Norfolk Chamber Music Festival in its 76th year. Where we live took a road trip to the northwest corner of the state to visit the campus where it all takes place, the former estate of Ellen Battelle. Her family instilled in her a love of music, a sentiment she and her husband fostered in starting a yearly music festival back in 1899. And they built a -a one-of-a-kind concert hall called the Music Shed. It's here where we met up with director of the Norfolk Chamber Music Festival, Melvin Chen. When Ellen Battelle-Steckel passed away, she left in her will um, that the grounds of the estate and the buildings would be in the hands of a trust that, that maintains you know, the buildings and the grounds, and she left money for that. But luckily for us, she also left money for a, a summer program uh, in music and the arts. And so, that, so we're, we're here you know, thanks to her generosity. And I, I believe this is the 76th year that Yale has run a summer program on the estate. And you know, so Yale has a long history with music, obviously back in New Haven, but there's also a very long history musically of Yale in Norfolk. Can you tell us more about Ellen Battelle and her husband, Carl Steckel, and why this was so important to them? Well, as I learned from Jim Nelson, who's been the general manager at the festival for many years, um, it's, it's great in my first year because every day I'm learning something new. And I'm, uh, that, uh, it's literally true, actually. <laughs> but uh, Carl Steckel's father was Gustav Steckel, who was um, the first music professor at Yale. So the family has a long interest in history with music. Um, Carl Steckel made his money in the shipping industry. And so he was uh, and grew very wealthy and was able to build this enormous mansion on the the estate called the White House, um, which is quite an amazing um, piece of architecture. (laughs) Um, But but they had concerts on the estate. They used used to have a kind of three-day festival in the summer. And it was not a chamber music festival in those days. And uh, it was actually a, a kind of orchestral festival. And... And uh, Ellen Battelle would have a express train from New York, and 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 the the musicians would get on this train. It would come right to Norfolk, and they they'd play orchestra concerts for three days. There were enormous crowds at these things uh, back back in the day, um, and so that's where you all these famous soloists performed. As a matter of fact, for example, um, Vaughn Williams. 
premiered one of his symphonies here. And Sibelius stayed in the White House for a month and wrote a, wrote a piece, uh, you know, that was commissioned by the Battelle family. This year, the Yale Summer School of Music accepted 72 students from the U.S. and 11 countries, including as far away as Australia. The students live with host families in the town of Norfolk. I asked Chen to explain how the students, the faculty, and guest artists collaborate for the annual festival. There are many aspects to the musical life at Norfolk uh, and the Chamber Music Festival specifically. One part is just the public concerts, which you see, uh, which involve guest artists uh, and, and faculty. And so they will have uh, many faculty from the Yale School of Music, but also the great uh, performing artists of this generation, you know, including the Moreau Quartet and the Emerson Quartet um, playing on this stage and also teaching. And so that's the other side of, of the Chamber Music Festival is that we are basically a school as well in the summer. And we're a school for specifically focused on classical chamber music, um, which is music for small ensembles, anywhere from duos up to, you know, seven or eight uh, musicians. And, you know, our aim is to educate the next generation of professional chamber musicians. So we scour the country for the most talented instrumentalists. They're usually undergraduates or in graduate school. Um, some of them invariably come from Yale, but also from the most distinguished conservatories around the country, including Curtis, Juilliard, New England Conservatory, Colburn Conservatory in, in California. So we have, a, we have a great mix this year of, of very talented people, not all, not all from the U.S. We have a brass quintet from Australia. Um, but what they have in common is that they're extremely talented and we feel like they have show great promise towards a professional career. So every week they're performing by themselves, usually on Thursday evenings and Saturday mornings, but also every Friday night we feature some of the fellows, as we call them, along, playing alongside their faculty mentors. This will actually be tonight that we hear this? Yes, uh, tonight um, is a Friday evening concert on our, what we call the main stage series, and it's the beginning of our Dvorak mini festival, which is a three week uh, series of concerts devoted to the music and influences of Dvorak. And so tonight you'll hear a program entitled Dvorak and Brahms, which looks at the relationship between the two composers. Brahms was a mentor to Dvorak and help, helped him in his work and his career for many years. And so we juxtapose the music of Brahms alongside the music of Dvorak. And the kind of centerpiece of the program is this great uh, F minor trio by Dvorak, one of his best and biggest pieces and also a piece that shows great influence from Brahms and you'll hear one of our uh, student fellows Peter playing the cello alongside two faculty artists. You're also a musician and I understand it's your first year as director of the the festival. Tell us about your background. Well you know I was uh, I grew up in Nashville Tennessee. <laughs> so you're a southerner. I'm a southerner <laughs> and um, I studied violin and piano at a, at a young age. And then I went uh, after high school to Yale um, and got a science degree actually. And then I went to Juilliard and got a music degree. <laughs> and then I went back to school and got another science degree. But then I decided that music was what I really wanted to be doing. What does it mean for you to be the director this year? Well, 
I, I, as I describe it to people, I think it's, uh, I was equally excited and terrified. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a very exciting to, to, to kind of be the head of, of a, a place that has such great history, such great tradition, such great quality. But at the same time, it's also a great responsibility to carry that forward and to, to grow it. Um, so it remains relevant to today's time. So it's equally, um, it's, it's challenging and, and thrilling. <laughs> you mentioned you learned violin and piano at a young age, but then you went on and pursued a science degree, but you eventually ended up in, in music again. Right. Why? <laughs> well, I like to tell people that. <laughs> that Asian parents like their, that like their children to learn music, but they don't want them to become musicians. <laughs> so, so I, you know, my parents started me on, on, on these instruments and um, my parents were both scientists. So um, I think naturally I, I got a science degree, but, um, but I, you know, I love music and I love uh, playing it and teaching it. So I, I gravitated towards that eventually and my parents are okay with it now that I can somewhat support myself. <laughs> this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're in Northwest Connecticut in the town of Norfolk, where each summer musicians, both students and professionals, have joined in the celebration of chamber music in collaboration with Yale Summer School of Music. We met up with director Melvin Chen, who's in his first year leading the 76th Norfolk Chamber Music Festival. I asked Chen what advice he gives the music students who are selected for the prestigious program. I mean, they, they, they're immensely talented. You know, I think every generation of musician that comes, I remember when I was a student, you know, my teachers were saying how great the students of my generation were, and now I'm saying the same thing about the next generation. I mean, I think that, um, that the students uh, now face interesting opportunities. I think that, you know, everyone has heard about how classical music is dying and, you know, and I, I, I don't subscribe to that theory. I think that every generation has to make what they do relevant uh, in a new way. You know, so what worked 50 years ago is not going to work today. I think underpinning that, you know, has to be a, a great study work uh, on the craft and artistry of what they're doing, of playing their instrument, of working together, of, of making great music. But at the same time, they have to also think about, you know, why is what we're doing important to other people who don't play music? Um, and so I think this generation is facing that as, you know, I think every generation has faced it. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm confident that they'll, will co they'll come up with their own creative solutions that nobody will think of. <laughs> uh, with that in mind, how do you connect what you're doing here to the community of Norfolk? Again, it has a legacy of following uh, music and yes. the tradition here, but also to communities outside Norfolk. How do you bring people here in the summer for this festival? Right. I, th I think that is something we're always wrestling with. I, I will say that the, the town of Norfolk is an incredibly supportive body uh, towards the Chamber Music Festival. You know, I see the same people over and over multiple times a week, coming to the student concerts, coming to the master classes, coming to the Friday and Saturday evening concerts. You know, I see them on the estate, you know, enjoying the, the, the scenery. I see them talking to the students. So, I, you know, I think the town of Norfolk has always been incredibly supportive. I think, you know, one of the challenges will be because Norfolk, I feel that this festival, and I think the town, town of Norfolk also feels that the festival is such a, a gem and a jewel, 
how to uh, let other people who may not be so close uh, find out about it. And I think, you know, we're trying a number of different ways to do that. One of the things that was started several years ago is that we stream all our concerts online so people, you know, the, the parents of the brass, Australian Brass Quintet can tune in probably at an ungodly hour for them, but they can, they can watch their, you know, uh, their children, you know, perform on the, on the music uh, shed stage. People who are supporters who can't make it to a concert for some whatever reason can uh, get on their computer and watch a great, you know, quality video stream and audio stream. I think the other thing is to uh, make Norfolk, a, the Chamber Music Festival, a destination in some way. So if someone in California is thinking, oh, there's a great festival on Dvorak. I love Dvorak. Why don't we plan our vacation? Why don't we fly out from California and, and check out this Dvorak festival? So in terms of the programming, make it, making it compelling enough that people will want to make a special trip to see it. Not, not simply because, oh, I'm in the area. I have nothing to do on Friday night. Why don't I come to the concert? But instead, because they're, they're uh, so intrigued by what we're doing here in terms of not only the quality of the performances, but the kind of intellectual breadth of the performances that they will come because they're curious and interested. You mentioned that you're from Tennessee originally. You have an Asian background. Uh, what are some ways that you can attract more diversity in the audience who comes here each year? Yes, I'm, I think, again, that's another one of our challenges. I think there are a couple ways to do this. I think, you know, if anyone who comes to our um, emerging artist concerts, they'll see that we make the the students say something about the piece beforehand and you know we encourage them you know not only to talk about the piece but but uh, to talk about their their personal connection with the music and I think that um, you know for someone who hasn't been to many classical concerts it's hard for them to kind of find an initial relationship to the music and I think you know uh, seeing a, a student talk about their own connection to the music helps them in that way. I think the, the other thing is, um, and this may be counterintuitive, is that, you know, uh, it, we have to make it clear that, that when we play chamber music, we're not just playing the music of dead composers, <laughs> but that music is actually alive, it's still growing, and so part of that is also featuring in some way the, the, the music of young people, people, people who are writing now, people who, you know, haven't been dead for 50 years, to, you know, to see that there's still new music being written, still good music being written, still interesting music being written. Um, you also mentioned just perceptions of classical music and in general, and I was looking through some of the programs, and in the program it makes a point to say, this is not a formal festival, you can come and be comfortable. I think that was an interesting uh, distinction to be made, so people right. know that it's open to everyone. Yeah, I mean, you know, our, our tagline for Norfolk is music among friends, and, and I think that's the way we like to think of it, you know, that, that the students, the faculty, the audience is, is kind of one big family and you know and, and and no one should feel uncomfortable at any of these you know any of these events and so i you know i welcome anyone who who's never been to a concert to come and check it out and i think you know they'll find that kind of the surroundings the how beautiful it is outside the concert hall how beautiful the music is will you know immediately make them feel comfortable that's melvin chen director of the norfolk chamber music festival in its 76th year Tonight's concert will feature music by Dvorak and Brahms, performed at the one-of-a-kind music shed. Details on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live.
I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. <laughs>